we're watching a pilot episode of HBO's The Wire. This episode directed by Clark Johnson, produced by myself, David Simon, written by myself with Ed Burns on story, as well as producers Robert Colesbury and Nina Noble. Shot entirely in Baltimore by Baltimore Craft and Labor Unions. Very proud of that, 100%. I think the scene you're looking at now is at Fulton and Lexington, West Baltimore. It seems to be a cop show. Blue lights flashing, but we were actually trying to mask something different within a cop show when we created this. The show's really about the American city and about how we live together. And it's about how institutions have an effect on individuals and how, regardless of what you're committed to, whether you are a cop, a longshoreman, a drug dealer, a politician, a judge, a lawyer, you are ultimately compromised and must contend with whatever institution you've committed to. In that thematic universe, we tried to tell a long story. The show should be considered almost as one story. It's not episodic. You don't watch one episode and are innately satisfied with what you've seen story-wise, although character and plot should drive you to the next episode. We basically tell one story of an investigation over 12 or 13 episodes and accept that as the standard for um, what we want to be judged for in terms of storytelling. That's very unique, obviously, for most episodic drama on TV, but it allows for a greater payoff at the end. We ask a lot of viewers, we ask them to follow a very intricate plot line over many hours, but we ultimately reward their effort. I gotta ask you, if every time Snap Boogie would grab the money and run away... This is a true story. The uh, parable of Snot Boogie, I actually used it in the book Homicide, which was written about real Baltimore homicide detectives in 1988. The kid Snot Boogie who um, used to always steal the money from the uh, crap game pot and finally one day got shot. It was actually Detective Terry McLarney asked why if Snot Boogie always grabbed the money, you let him play. One of the witnesses said, you got it, this is America. I thought that was a wonderful metaphor for... Uh, what's going on in the American city. That those who are excluded from the legitimate economy make their own world. And we're trying to depict the world that they've created upon being excluded from the rest of America. Blind Boys of Alabama singing the theme song, written by Tom Waits. I was going to be doing this commentary with my partner Bob Colesbury, with whom I did The Corner and with whom I created The Wire. Regrettably, Bob uh, passed away suddenly from complications from surgery. He loved this song. I have to say, when he was uh, fading, but nonetheless still with us in the hospital, one of the last things that we could do for Bob was to 
run around Upper Manhattan and find this CD and play this song for him. We tried to layer in these sort of innocuous shots of surveillance throughout the first season to give you a sense of a world that is increasingly watched, even watched with certain indifference. And we were trying to create a world not where there was little nuggets of information that were like precious, and that's all there was, which is often the way of so many police procedurals on TV. We were trying to create a world where there was almost too much information being thrown at the detectives, and it was their job to sift. It was almost as if there was so much garbage coming in, and the detective's challenge was to separate the wheat from chaff. Photo array card sitting in the courtroom today. He's right there. For the record, the witness has identified the defendant, D'Angelo Barksdale. This is a real courtroom in the Baltimore City Circuit Court building. Just one question, Mr. Gant. Had you ever seen this young man before the day in question? No, no. No further questions, Your Honor. You're excused, Mr. Gant. Call your next witness. State calls Nikisha Lyles, Your Honor. What I love about this scene is the almost expert blocking. Bob worked really hard on using the whole courtroom and getting the looks. You got the thugs in the back being a presence, intimidating witnesses. You've got Larry Gilliard playing D'Angelo at the defense table. You've got the witnesses. You've got the prosecutors moving. There you have Stringer Bell the number two in charge of the drug crew. And And you've got the detective who knows who he is and knows what they're doing sitting just off of his shoulder. And were you employed as a security guard on May 4th? So that you can have moments like this. Uh And what were your duties on that date? I was in the booth of 221. And is that the guard booth in the lobby of the Fremont Avenue high-rise? Yes. And you're behind... One thing I think the show gets right that most cop shows don't is that Good. it's all business. Now, Ms. Lyles, I it's just business. It's not, but can you tell us what you I said? am personally invested in getting okay. drugs off the street, you know, or I am later. going to fix this and neighborhood, or I am like, conscious of trying to uphold the law of the land. That protect and serve nonsense somehow continues to exist on most American television shows. And do you see that man in the courtroom today? A good detective, it's really sort of an act of professional vanity to say, I'm better than this guy. I'm not going to let him beat me. I'm going to win. Excuse me? That's pure enough. I mean, the notion that Jimmy McNulty thinks he's going to make West Baltimore better by engaging these guys in a case is, I think, too naive for him. He doesn't believe that. You testify. West Baltimore, to him, will always be West Baltimore. Ms. Lyles, do you remember when Detective Barlow showed you this photo already? These guys are a worthy target. Yeah. Good. As he says later in the season, stupid criminals make for stupid cops. I'm proud to be chasing these guys. Mr. Blanchard, did you write your initials above that photograph? He ain't the one that did the shooting. 
but you identified him. Well, that's because he looked like the boy that did it. See, the, the one that did it, I saw him come in the building a week later. This is a homicide detective's worst nightmare else. in Baltimore he anyway. Did the, shooting. Right. the backing a up witness. <laughs> I saw this happen. You spoke with the detectives. You I saw it once. I saw it two I dozen times. I called detective... Um, in real courtrooms. Um... Yeah, Detective Barlow, on um, on May 13th at 2 p.m., but he didn't call me back. Nicely done. You called Detective Barlow? Yeah, twice. Yeah, I wrote down in the law. I need a price for pressure treated. Uh, oh, that's your price. That's the price that you were going to quote me. Yes. Well, do you feel that, Mikey? Do you feel it? Because I swear to God, that is my fucking dick in your ear. Hang on, you fucking thief. What's up? You been down the hall lately? What? Your case just hit the wall. Barksdale's crew, they turned it. Two eyewitnesses and a statement. No fucking way, pal. State attorney's office, violent crime. You listen to me, you little shit. There is no way in hell I am paying that. No. Use my goddamn car to show for that dusty bitch around. Yo, ease up. You don't understand. I did for that man, and he do this. Well, look, getting heated ain't gonna help. Hey, Griggs, what's your bird saying? It ain't what she says. Yeah? What do you say? I say we wait. Shit. This is Landville Street, I think. That's him. All right, easy, girl. Yo, Herc, you got that? Yeah, we see. You got the uniforms on the horn? They're on hold. That's Ghost. All right, good, Tiff. Now tell me what I'm seeing, girl. He gonna get little Mike. Mm-hmm. Then what? Mike come back with the money. All right, wait on the drop. Take the car when it's deep in the block. I don't want no foot chase. Copy. Got it. Here's the stuff of so many cops episodes. The great jump out, the running around, the grabbing the guys, the adrenaline of police work. And we wanted to undercut all that. We wanted to show all of this pumped up implied violence, authoritarian impulse, the broken edge of the bottle of the drug war. And then we wanted to take the air out of their sails at the end, which Sonia Sonia's does nicely, I think. Slowly, step out of the car. Step out of the car. Down on the ground. Down on the ground. Take his hands to jail. You got him, Carl? I got him. Look at this shit. Cross your legs. One of the things about this show that people may or may not notice is that we don't cue music. When there's something exciting happening, we do not use musical cues. We don't try to pump up the emotion by using sort of, you know, Kodo drums or synthesizer or any of that suggestive stuff that tells you what you're supposed to think. In fact, we spend a lot of time on the sound package, but what we tend to do is use background noise. You hear police radios in the scene. You hear shouts in background. We fill up the space by basically trying to create a real ambient sense of the moment. And the other thing that we would do with music is that it has to be sourced. It has to come from a car radio or a tenement window. All rise. 
Part 12 of the Circuit Court of Baltimore City is now... We're not interested in montage, except at the very end of the piece, at the very end of both seasons. We actually would break that wall and allow a moment of montage. But other than that, we avoid that studiously. to the charge of murder in the first degree? Not guilty. How say you to the charge of murder in the second degree? Not guilty. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Be seated. Be seated. You, Daddy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Order. At least you made him work for it. Be seated. The jury is to be thanked for its services in this case. Deputies will return Defendant Barksdale to pretrial for processing prior to his release. Not a happy judge. What I like about these actors, Idris Elba and Dominic West here, is how much they did with the looks back and forth. Less is more on television. It's not the theater. We're not looking for big moments. We're looking for the nuance of real life. Dominic and Idris have that in spades. They really give these measured, credible performances that place them directly in Baltimore, in the criminal justice system, in your head. What the hell happened out there? We lost. Were you on this? The case? Yeah. No, it was Barlow. And this is from McClarney. It was Barlow's case. Why are you in court? No reason. Oh, you just like coming to court on murders you don't even work? Just for uh, the thriller? Well, when you start coming with the customers, it's time to get out of the business. You shouldn't talk dirty now that you're Peter Garrity, the judge, did something wonderful here with the pills. That Barksdale kid. He's a cousin to this Avon was all Barksdale. him, dropping the pills and then going for it. It was such Avon a Barksdale. real moment. Stringer Bell. Crew has been running Franklin Terrace for a year. Stringer Bell. Yeah, that was him in court with the legal pad and the glasses, scaring the living shit out of every witness. Him and the rest of his crew. Weebay, Savino, Stinkham. I saw him. You think about clearing the court? On what basis? It's an open court and a free nation of laws. Huh. I thought it was Baltimore. Barksdale has five out of seven towers on the terrace. That's ten stairwells and five high-rises going 24-7 for dope and coke. And that's just the towers. The low-rises, the avenue corners, they're all his, too. How do you know this? My uh, partner on the story, Ed Burns, the last ten years of his police career, these are the cases he did. Wiretap cases against violent drug groups working in the projects in West Baltimore. 10 or 12 bodies in as many months. Beat three cases in court doing the same thing they just did to you. Well, who's working at in the department? Nobody, really. Well, I mean, we're a little busy doing street rips, you know. Community policing and all that. So if it's not your case, why do you care? Well, who said I did? Oh, One more time. One more time. Huh? Stop playing, and you couldn't get them by traditional means of homicide investigation because they would intimidate witnesses and normal cases would disappear. Why me? You want the call to do the submissions. A lot of what we did in this first season is rooted in the experiences of Ed Burns as a police officer. Do I look like your bitch? We're taking the Mercedes? No. Promise my girl. Cause in her name. Narcotics. Lieutenant, line two. Here you go. 
Fuck me, I cannot type. Who the fuck can? Shit, Millennium been and gone, and we still fucking around with Smith Corona. Well, we need to get them computers hooked up. They promised to train us on that shit a year ago. What would an ass ignorant <laughs> motherfucker like you do with a computer? I don't know. Trade stocks and shit. <laughs> Jerk off. We wanted the police station to be very different from the police show that preceded us in Baltimore, Homicide. We wanted it to be dry and almost have that sort of insurance office cubicle feel of the modern. Not any sort of old-time Barney Miller, it's your father's police department and your grandfather's police department, and we are cops pursuing the same sense of justice for the last hundred years in this building, kind of feel that tends to lionize the genre. We were looking for the opposite. We were looking for something corporate and institutional, because we're trying to create an institutional police department. Two guns, right? That's three. Fuck it, Kimi. You want a job done right, you got to do it your own self. <laughs> what he means to say is that we are an effective deterrent on the war on drugs when we are on the street. Fucking motherfuckers up, right? Indeed. Boom. Fuck the paperwork. Collect bodies, split heads. Split them wide. The Western District way. All right. You heroic motherfuckers kill me. Fighting the war on drugs. One brutality case at a time. Girl, you can't even call this shit a war. Why not? Wars end. <laughs> That's Ed Burns. <laughs> that was his line, I have to say. He fought two losing wars. He's fought in Vietnam and he fought the drug war for 20 years as a Baltimore cop. He's entitled to that line. Smoke him if you got him, because this motherfucker is as ripe as they get. The bunk. The bunk is based on several homicide detectives that I admire. Eddie Brown, Oscar Requeer, Vernon Holly. Wendell Pierce plays him so beautifully. The name Bunk is actually Oscar Requeer's nickname. Requeer was known as the Bunk for all his years in homicide. I think primarily because he addressed everybody as Bunky or Bunk. He's a man of great charm and wit. It ain't even gonna be a murder. And it was an act of love to name this character the bunk. Something that just fell out. I bet you there ain't nothing to it. You hope. Where are you going? Back to the office. Little known secret: detectives will pick up the phone and be happy if the dispatcher's telling them the body's in a house. You got a 50% chance better of solving a murder where the body's indoors than outdoors, because you can at least tie him to a property and the property is tied to other names, and you got a head start, as opposed to a body lying in the 1400 block of Durham Street. So Bunk picked up the phone. He heard that it was a guy in a house. He took the call even though another squad was up, except it turned out to be a vacant house and a decomp lying there. So he got burned on it, but Detectives all over America would recognize the logic of that scene. Who? That's what I said. Who the fuck is Avon Barksdale? According to the right we see the first rule of our institutional police department, which is shit rolling downhill. Now, as of today, I never heard of Mr. Barksdale. But by tomorrow. All right. What do we know? According to This is shot at Charles Center. We're trying to simulate the actual location of the Baltimore Police Headquarters building, which is a high-rise sort of glass enclosed <laughs> asbestos encased 1970s monstrosity over on Fayette Street. 
call Andrews at DEA, see what they have on this moat. What about homicide? I mean, if the guy's doing murders... Homicide major was in the same meeting. His people would be scrambling to get something on paper, too. I doubt they'd be willing to share it, but you can try. Lance Reddick. He played Daniels so wonderfully buttoned down. Got a D.O.B. And so taught. A guy with ambition reaching for higher command. He started from such a baseline of tension that when you finally see this guy actually smile five or six episodes down the road, it's such a release. Drinking, crack smoking, pouring myself on the streets of Baltimore. Well, okay. Just so you have an excuse. But your fuck of a partner picked up the phone, caught a call. Yeah, I saw him out there. Yeah? What do you got? Decomp in a vacant apartment. Fuck. Nolan's squad was up. That one should be theirs. Hey, it's a decomp. Maybe comes back a natural death. You think? In the Poe homes? No fucking way. Oh, hold up. Major wants to talk to you before you roll out. What about? Fuck should I know? I'm only your sergeant. Sit the fuck down, detective. Something wrong? Put your ass in the chair. You see these, McNulty? You see them? These are for you. These are for you for as long as it takes me to get even. Major, what no, is... no, no, don't major me, you backstabbing smart-ass piece of shit. What the this fuck character is based on a real hard-ass commander who was not this guy? evil in any way. In fact, he was a pretty good commander. He's a few, when I first came on as a reporter at the here, Baltimore Sun, the guy who was in charge of uh, CID was Joe Cook. And he had a good hard ass to him. He could chew you out pretty good. He had a lot of edge. So we gave Rawls, the character, sort of Joe Cook's kind of iron edge, but the venality of somebody who had lived too long in a dysfunctional institution. Well, sir, you can check the files. Maurice Scroggins, Toreen Boyd, Roland Leggett, what's the name, the girl they found in the stairwell in Saratoga, Colette something or other. I mean, Major, these guys are real. They beat me up on the Gerard Bode case, just like they did Barlow. Scroggins? And here, the idea of reducing all your murders to index cards to keep track of them. This is a world in which murders don't matter, in which when you have 300 a year or almost one a day, you can't keep the names straight if you're the commander. He's dealing in volume. He's not dealing in 40 or 50 murders a year like some cities. He's dealing in a city that has a huge drug problem where most of the people who are killed are not of particular political interest to anyone and where most of the violence is happening in neighborhoods that are not politically supported or politically viable. And so what you're basically trying to do is create a statistical suggestion of success. A high clearance rate is good, a low clearance rate is bad, but the individual murders barely exist in your mind. You have my attention, detective. My complete undivided attention. Yes, sir. Where are you going? I'm eight to four. No. When the show first started airing, sir, we got some modest criticism for the sheer amount of profanity. 
And to my ear, having covered police and having gone out to drug corners and reported in Baltimore for 12, 13 years for The Sun, my ear only heard people talking as I knew them to talk. The Baltimore Police Department is a very profane place. There's some poetry to the way people talk, but it is profane. I'm sorry, Major, really. Later in the season, episode four, we actually had a scene where detectives McNulty and Bunk, they redo an old crime scene. They actually figure out what was going on. And while they're doing it and doing bullet trajectories and figuring out exactly how the murder occurred, generally using the word fuck in all of its various permutations, that very scene was suggested to me by a great department wit, Terry McLarney, who said... Well, you know, we're eventually reaching that point where detectives will be able to talk to each other using only that word and maybe the word motherfucker and do their whole job with just those two words. And he was laughing at the time when he said it, but I thought, you know, I can write that scene. <laughs> and actually, uh, Ed Burns is the one who took a pass at that and I think did beautifully. This is a Bob Colesbury shot to stay wide, or Bob Callsbury edit, in conjunction with Clark. What's the rule? I know the rule. Say it. Don't Note the lettering above them. Burgers, chicken. On the phone or in any place that ain't ours, and don't say shit to anybody who ain't us. But we Bay is the real gangster. Is your fucking truck. No issues, he's hardcore. He's got the burger sign above him. D'Angelo is half in the game, half out in his mind chicken above his head. Police come by, but they're not coming for Weebay. Weebay knows the rules, and he ain't gonna get caught. I love that shot. One of the things Bob always talked about was staying in the wide whenever you can. Show the world. It's something that TV does very poorly. You tend to be shooting on sound stages rather than the real world, and you tend to go for the close-up as often as not. Bob was a big believer in shooting it well making it filmic, which I think this show is. Much more filmic than most of what's on television. And then showing the world, staying wide. Try to pin Gerard on little Kevin. Which one? White detective, black hair, one that was knocking on all the doors. What about him? He showed up in court to watch. The girls you see are actually the ladies who work at the Ritz. They were absolutely professional in the filming of this, I have to say. As was my casting crew. I think. Wood Harris is here on Barksdale. So you must feel good. You know how that go. Say what? Saying, you know, jail ain't no joke. Larry Gilliard did such a magnificent job. I don't plan on knowing shit about jail. Here's D'Angelo. 
You want to talk about jail, though, you can go sit down next to Marcel. He just got home. True, you right. Sit your ass down. This scene is I know it ain't completely parallel to the ass-ripping that McNulty just got earlier from his superior. The scenes are constructed so that you start to realize you're looking at competing institutions that operate differently, that have different standards of professionalism, but that nonetheless impose the same will on individuals within them. Bob and Clark were very careful to use the parallels. You can't play him out of that lobby. You can't take a beating either. So the first thing you do, you get all emotional. You pull your gun out. You do some dumb shit. Then now we got to work around. I know. D'Angelo absorbing this with the same degree of humility that McNulty was forced to exhibit when Rawls was ripping him. You're right. You're right. I mean... I got to start thinking more. You be saying that all the time. Again, I think it's a mistake to assume because of what the content is about that this is purely a genre piece. I mean, I guess it is a genre piece, but what we were really looking at is sort of major themes in modern American life. That sounds sort of pompous, I guess. But it's my belief that the crime story in American fiction and in American literature even has become an essential genre ever since, you know, Hammett and Chandler. And it is as elemental to our understanding of ourselves at this point as the Western was at an earlier point in the 20th century. And so we're using these sort of stories of an American city to explore not just, you know, the war on drugs or how a wiretap case works, but what it means to live in an American city and to be beholden, as we all are in some way, to the institutions that form a city. That was the major theme of the first season. This is my uh, co-exec producer, Bob Colesbury, playing Ray Cole. Bob was actually a very subtle actor, and he was often in many of the films that he produced. But in very small parts, he would always have some small, very appropriate point at which he would contribute. Well, my fault. Really? Judge Phelan pulled me up. Having seen him in some of his films, Mississippi Burning, Billy Bathgate, After Hours, he produced some great films. We decided Bob should have a continuing role. Over his objection, he had to uh, be talked into it. Look at him, Cole. Don't it make your dick bust concrete to be in the same room with two noble, selfless public servants? That's an actual Jay Landsman phrase from real life. Don't it make your dick bust concrete? You put this Man one was a poet. Of course not. And of course your partner over here has to go over to the courthouse and lay our business out in front of a judge. So you heard? Delaney Williams. Major calls me at home, says I should get in early, read over your shoulder. He had a small part in the corner, which Bob and I did, and he made the most of one or two lines. And we said, if we ever get the wire up, this guy has to work. 
Look, all I did was answer the guy's questions. He's a fucking the local actor from the Baltimore, Washington area, and, and he's just magnificent. Fucking deputy, and he, not the judge, has what's left of your beshitted career in his hot little hands. He says so. You're walking foot in the Western tomorrow. Fuck it, I came from Western. <laughs> well, where don't you want to go, asshole? Evidence control, personnel, <laughs> headquarters security, the boat, the marine unit. Yeah, those diesel fumes that make me feel seasick. I don't think it's revealing too much since we're in the DVD release to say that that's an essential line. Midnight shift. Listen to the man, Jimmy. When you say where you don't want to go and you're screwing around with the hierarchy as McNulty is doing, you may well end up on the boat at the end of 13 episodes. Where McNulty didn't want to go was the boat, and now D'Angelo is effectively about to be sent to his equivalent of the boat. Again, the parallel structure. You're going out on point picking up business in the pit. What? You're the man in the low rises. The low rises? You got Ronnie Moe in the pit. Ronnie Moe got 851 this morning. How you gonna put me in the low rises when I had a tower since summer? Yeah, you had a tower. You might have a tower again if you can keep your mind to shit. This is fucked up. You show us you can run the pit and you'll be back uptown soon enough. <laughs> My uncle know about this? We tend to mix the names up. So a first name will be tangled with a different street name or a street name will be tangled with a different last name. But it's our kind of backhanded homage to the reality of West Baltimore. There really was a Nathan Bodie Barksdale. We split that up. There's a Bodie character in this tale. There's a Avon Barksdale character. The Barksdale family was sort of famous in their day in West Baltimore back in the 80s for their endeavors in the project. That's kind of how we're playing it. They're not based on real people individually, but a character might be a composite of three or four real people that Ed and I knew, or in his case, police, or in my case, reported Talk about on. chain of command. Tell him yourself, he's dead to me. That's a CGI picture. Those projects do not exist anymore. They were finally dynamited in the early 90s by the city. They were effectively unpoliceable. They were the worst 24-hour drug markets in Baltimore. But we wanted to set this tale prior to the uh, destruction of the high-rises because the high-rises created such lucrative territory for the drug traffic. Yo, you looking for Ronnie Moe? He uptown. So we used a couple of real towers that are actually senior citizens' homes, the last two towers over on that side of the city. That's a real one behind you. And we CGI'd about five or six more at various points to create the sense of old Lexington Terrace or the Murphy homes. Love that shot. I think that was Clark. Very well done. Yeah. Major? Kind of what we got from the DEA. How much do we have on this guy? Sir? Lieutenant, in my hand I'm holding how many pages? Four, sir. 
Rawls had a fucking phone book. What can I tell you? They got ten open murder files. If we had ten shots at this guy, we'd have a lot more than a fat yeah, five. Yeah, I made that point upstairs. I can't put this guy down for a murder or two, so they're getting us to do their work. Again, this, they got us. Well, they got you, in fact. Excuse me, sir. Well, Dawson has the York and Cater case. That leaves you. Uh, shit. Look, set something up with homicide. And whoever else you want from your squads. State's attorney? Yeah, we should call them, too. Fucking shitstorm. Lieutenant, line three. Deputy Ops. Oh, the deputy Ops, the number two man in the department. Andre Royo is Bubbles. There was a real Bubbles. He was Ed Burns' best informant for many of the years. Burns was a uh, an officer in the escape and apprehension squad. He was magnificent at locating escapees and calling in on them. And Baltimore back in the 70s and 80s had a lot of escapees from the state prison system. Wait, why are we, we going to use real money? Bubbles had a photographic memory for faces and a lot of charm. He was an A-rabber, actually, in real life. He, uh, he worked on an A-rap cart. And later on, we actually show him on an A-rap cart to honor the real Bubbles. I met him a couple of times. He was dying of AIDS in the mid-'80s, late-'80s, I guess. And I wanted to start interviewing him to write a long feature on a guy who was a lifelong... He'd been a police informant for 20 years and uh, had survived. And I started interviewing him and talked to him for three hours. I went back, had another interview for another couple hours. That When I went back for the third interview, the landlord told me he had died. He was living in a walk-up on Harlem Avenue. And I ended up writing not a uh, feature story for The Sun, but an obituary, which was a strange thing. Write an obit for a police informant. Look, you can't serve your customers straight up after taking their money. Somebody snapping pictures, they got the whole damn thing. See what I'm saying? You get paid. These housing projects are the McCullough Homes, low rises over off of uh, McCullough and Druid Hill. Just northwest of downtown. What's your count? Not for seven. You want to count it? I mean, I don't know how y'all do shit up These guys made these moments feel so real. Hey, yo, yo, ho, ho, ho. Y'all niggas been burnt. Huh? Huh? That's what you got to say? Huh? In a single this look like scene, money? Motherfucker. you established money be green. sort of the outlines of people's money. personalities, the way they deal with each other, like money. and the that pecking order within the pit. To you? Got a dead fucking president on it. Hey, I don't give a fuck about the president. That shit ain't money. He ain't no president. What you mean? Hamilton? He ain't no president. Nigga, is you crazy? Ain't no ugly-ass white man get his face on no legal motherfucking tender set, he president. If this shit happen again, you off the money. You hear me? You ain't even gonna be serving no more. Tough thing yeah, of being at the bottom, bottom of a pecking order, at the bottom of an institutional hierarchy, is that even when you're right, you're wrong. Hamilton, uh, <laughs> Secretary of the Treasury, for those keeping score. Wallace was right. The Johnny character is based on a wonderful white straight tag-along that Gary McCullough 
had when he was struggling with addiction in the book that Ed and I wrote called The Corner. There was a moment in the summer of 93 where the character we were following, Gary McCullough, had this white addict named Johnny Boy from Brooklyn Park area who was floating around with him and who he was trying to keep from getting burnt every other day in the West Fayette Street area. I know a lot, Bubs. Gary's efforts to school Johnny. We watched that and they, they informed these scenes. You're still green. Gonna make me brown? Hey, yo, Bubs. Well, let me do the scam tomorrow. Come on, man, I'm ready. I'm brown. Again, staying in the wide. All these shots are, again, hinting at a world of surveillance that is always present, if not entirely utilized. They're talking about how to do a case and what kind of information required and what they should and shouldn't do. And before that, we made a point of implying the potentiality of seeing the external, first through the uh, video monitor and then through Burrell's look out the window at an arguing couple. Why is he asking about this box deal? He watched the state's attorney get beat up in his court this week. Lost a murder case. We lose cases all the time. But a judge happens to be asking about this. Frankie Faison is such a wonderful person. Who presence. are you using? Lead detective? Greggs. She's my best right now. I know her. CID for four months. Came over from Eastern DEU. Who's Amazon sending? <laughs> That's up to Major Rawls. I wouldn't be surprised if you get McNulty. You know McNulty? One of the no, things we're very conscious of is that our heavies not be completely venal. the judge? Yeah, that's my understanding. So if he comes over on this... They can have that tendency, they can do what they need to do to survive at the top of an institution. But Burrell is not an effectively corrupt character. He is just self-preserving. He cares about preserving himself and ultimately the department more than he cares about the department's ultimate purpose of police work. Rawls cares about preserving himself and his clearance rate more than the ultimate mission of police work. But there are moments where they become essentially human in all facets, and we were very conscious of doing that, giving them moments where they show that, aside from their priorities, they're completely capable of striking a deal or being reasonable. Rawls has a great moment later when one of the police officers is shot and he basically emotionally embraces McNulty, who he's furious at, because he's unwilling to put that on McNulty's shoulders that McNulty had any responsibility for another cop getting shot. These characters redeem themselves at points. That was important to us. That and more. Yeah, 
And there's McNulty's glimpse at the higher end of police work that he aspires to, despite the fact that his institution is not quite so functional. It's live? Live. From a three-story walk-up on Homer Avenue in the bottoms of Pimlico. Agent Fitzhugh, the name is a modest homage. This is my shout-out to an FBI agent named Jim Fitzsimmons. He did the Bordley case with Ed Burns when he was working Squad 5 at the Woodlawn Field Office, and he is a good police. Despite the fact that he is a uh, federale, he is regarded by the locals as being entirely worthy of the moniker good police. We could have a Title III on them right now if we wanted. Wrong war, brother. Most of the squad's been transferred to counterterrorism. This thing's the last drug case we got pending. I gotta shut it down by the end of the month. You guys are getting out of drugs? Yeah, for a while, yeah. We just don't have the manpower to stay anything big. That's this was predictive stuff. on our part. What, we don't have enough we were filming this pilot hours. two months after 911. And although the FBI hadn't announced it yet, it was utterly apparent from the manpower that we knew they had and what their priority would be that they would have to be giving short shrift to any anti-drug mission they had. Any priority in the drug war was going right out the window. They have 10, 12,000 agents available. And counterterrorism is a huge effort. And once 911 happened, we could have guessed that that was going to be the priority. Shortly after we finished filming the pilot, it was announced in Washington by the Justice Department that the FBI would be diminishing its anti-drug role. Here goes uh, Leo Fitzpatrick as Johnny to run the scam off of uh, Wallace, played by Michael Jordan wonderfully. I gave you 20, man. You gave me, you gave me 20? 20, one of the short three. So you get seven. I hold up, hold up. Seven back, come on, man. Michael's portrayal of this young kid in the projects was so empathetic and so much an emotional center to that part of the show. It really reminds you of that adage which puts the lie to the drug war about what we're doing. The adage being that a 14-year-old drug dealer is still 14 years old. We've raised a draconian standard of prohibition now to a point where what began as a war against illicit drugs and narcotics and the damage they do has now become a war on the underclass in American cities. That's another theme that we've really explored this season. Court is being held here. This is the equivalent of a uh, housing project trial. With D'Angelo Barksdale sitting as the judge. And sometimes the absence of a decision is a decision. D'Angelo is not a brutal man. And he's not comfortable with brutality. Well, what's up? Sometimes there's no place for him to go or say anything or do anything. Fuck. Hell yeah! 
For now, we'll work out a narcotics with Kima keeping the file. We'll copy everything to Ronnie at the courthouse and your people down the hall. Fine with us. McNulty and Santangelo will work back on some of the open murders, see if anything can be manufactured there. Kima and my people start doing some hand-to-hand -hand stuff on the terrace. Bye, bust, quick and dirty. We put some this is the first meeting of the detail that ultimately will be pursuing the Barksdale crew. And they begin from a point of disparate opinions and pretty much hating each other's guts. Kind of like office politics wherever any of us work. Okay, so I'm an asshole for that, but I'm right about this much. No mics, no wires. We do this fast and clean and simple. Then you don't do it at all. What the? Seems to me you all could have had this fight between yourselves before calling in the state's attorney's office. Let me ask. One you of the things about this show is that because it's stretching the story over 12 episodes, what do we know? you have room for all the intimacies and ordinariness that constitute real life. Dob, sheet, be a vi photo. You're not trying to pump all of the story and plot developments into a single hour so you can make an arrest after 15 minutes. So what you're doing is effectively creating almost, by television standards, a real-time logic where you have room for all of the regular idiosyncrasies and nuance of how people relate and how institutions work. And that stuff is precious to me. My people are going down to do some hand-to-hands. What it does do, though, is create a very different pace from television. It's much more like a novel. And any book you ever read, if it was a narrative piece of literature, and you go back and you look at what the first chapter was, invariably, it doesn't hint at the quality of what follows. Each chapter builds on the next so that the first chapter draws you in and makes you commit enough to reading another chapter. And chapter two makes you want to read chapter three. And by the time you're at chapter eight, you know you're never going to put the book down if it's a good book. And that's the logic that we tried to uh, apply to this work. It's kind of disturbing for viewers who are expecting a television show. It's not moving as fast as they expect. But, you know, when they picked up a copy of Moby Dick, to use one example, you don't meet the whale in the first chapter. You don't even meet Ahab. You don't go on the Pequod. Basically, the guy comes into Bedford, and there's no room at the inn, and he's got to share a room with some freaky guy with tattoos and a harpoon. And that's it. That's all you get in the first couple of chapters of a classic book. The reason you keep reading is that you understand that the writer is going somewhere, that Melville has a plan here, and you trust in the plan a little bit. And we were kind of asking viewers to do the same thing, to believe that we were building something here. The epigram for episode, I think it's four or five, one of those, is Lester Freeman saying we're building something here and all the pieces matter. He's black, still young, he hasn't pissed anybody off. We knew what was going to be in episode 12 and 10 and 9 when we were writing the pilot. And we were pacing it as we needed to pace it to make it a credible novel. If you came to it and you were expecting an episodic drama, you were very disturbed by how slow-moving and intricate it was. It's almost irritating. In some ways, I think the first season was us training our viewership to watch us differently, to watch us with a different level of expectation. At the same time, the corresponding truth is that what we're going to do is deliver at the end, hopefully, in a way that justifies your faith as a viewer, that everything will pay off.
and in a much more meaningful way than if we paid it off after an hour. The only reason I think that has a chance of working on a medium like television is that HBO shows their episodes five or six times a week. Otherwise, I think we'd be in deep trouble. But I think it's a new way of using television, and I'm very excited about it, and all of us in creating the show were. And we ultimately understood that we were taking some risks here, but for a reward that we thought was entirely worthwhile. String. You'll string him. There's an initial meeting between D'Angelo and Chardine, played by Wendy Grantham. I have something great to say about Wendy, which is this is her first acting gig, and she really took it to a great level. But more than that, and this just makes me smile, she is a graduate of Harvard University. So take that. <laughs> take that for all your stereotypes. How much? 20. I drink slow. I teased her later. I said, if we'd known that, we wouldn't have cast you as Chardine, for Christ's sake. Maybe another time. She just sat down next to, I think, Clark Johnson's uncle or cousin from Philadelphia in the role of that extra at the bar. Somebody had an amusing accusation after watching a couple seasons of The Corner. They said that when it came to personal relationships on the show, our gay relationships were actually the healthiest and that all of our heterosexual relationships were dysfunctional and what were we trying to say? Since we sort of had arced out certain outcomes for various relationships, we were sort of surprised by the criticism. We realized it sort of had seemed that way initially. But I think over time, you're going to find out that I think the general view of The Wire is that there are no healthy relationships. Long Some of them stay healthy for a while. We're not entirely without hope. <laughs> I'll make sure I pick up some coffee. So... I drive all the way down to Liberty Road. It was a great shot. This is the rail bed, southwest Baltimore, off of Ramsey Street. And this story about shooting the mouse is a real story. What the fuck you think? I got the mouse out as fast as I could. Drove back to work. Couldn't do nothing else. Nadine out of her fucking mind over this little ass field mouse. I mean, she's up on the chair and shit when I come like some goddamn cartoon. I mean, how did you catch the mouse? Catch him? I lit his ass up. You shot the mouse? Mm-hmm. You're nine? First shot killed my wife's dress shoe. Got him with the second. 
what? You shot a mouse with your service weapon? Yeah. What did you do with the car? You can't make stuff like this up, I have to say. Guys tell me stories like this, and I write it on a cocktail napkin and save it. <laughs> oh, fuck me. It's 3.30 in the morning. I'm supposed to be... Uh, Here's a heavy, slow-moving metaphor, if ever there was one. McNulty's going to go take a leak on the tracks. I'm going to do this case. And there's a train coming. What? I'm gonna do this case. Where it should be done. So buy a bus, Jimmy. Get in and get out. Now fuck that. Jimmy. To get that last little piece with the train coming past McNulty, Dominic actually had to stand on the tracks. I was a little worried we were gonna lose our lead actor in the pilot. It wasn't that close, but the train's a big thing, and it was kind of scary. <laughs> this is the real shock trauma unit at University of Maryland Hospital. Hi, Bubs. They graciously allowed us to film there. Aren't you still locked up? Nope. How long have you been home? In three months. All right, don't Who's it? What I loved about this scene was no hand-holding, no hovering right by the bed, the distance between somebody who's really screwed up in a trauma unit and the person who's standing there helpless. Downtown, yeah. Clark and Bob, I think, had a natural impulse to resist sort of the dramatic, emotional moment, to hold back a bit. Let's go! Oh, fuck. <laughs> Found body, 200 block Amity. I'm a little thin today, boss. The whole squad's a little thin, remember? We're down a man since your partner got himself... Nothing I ever experienced doing homicide was more heroic than watching a detective yeah, with a hangover yeah. go out on a crime scene. I got it. And it happened occasionally, I have to say. It was Homeric when it occurred. It was a great look that Wendell just gave, looking at the gun and then the sergeant. Those are actual statues in the McCullough homes. I've always loved them. Right on the street. Uh, how you doing, Bob? Sorry, Bob. What's going on, man? Got one or two shots to the head. Uh -huh. No witnesses, no suspects. Got a 380 casing on the ground there. Hey, buddy, do me a favor. Bag that for me, huh? So, uh, who called it in? No one. 21 posts found him. It's uh, William Gant, 42, uh, 43 years old, uh, address on Schroeder. We got pictures? Yeah, we got it. Okay, let's roll it. Oh. 
Mr. Gant, do you see the man you identified this was a moment sitting that in the HBO room? urged on us with the flashback? He's right there. We felt as if we could go without it. They were very worried that people would not remember Gant as the witness from earlier in the trial who had testified against D'Angelo. They were afraid that that connection would be lost. It was the end of the movie. There was no opportunity to explain it in any narrative way other than to use the flashback. They may have been right. I don't know. It may have been asking viewers too much because at this point, again, viewers are being asked to look at the show in a whole new way and to absorb detail to a greater degree than people did off of television normally. So HBO may have been right. It bothered me that it broke the narrative to use flashback there. It's the only time we've ever used flashback and hopefully the only time we ever will. That's it for the pilot. If you haven't had enough of people talking in your ear, stay tuned for episode two of season one which was also directed by Clark Johnson. And Clark is going to provide some commentary on that episode. 